So here's something we don't always talk about in church that I want you to think about. What's the worst thing that's happened in your life? What's the worst thing that you've ever gone through? The thing that kept you up at night, shook you to your core, caused you the greatest fear, anxiety, depression, a feeling of complete helplessness. Because the truth is, in a room like this, there's a, a vast majority of people who have gone through something like that. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. Maybe it was years ago, but every time you think about it, it instantly takes you back to that moment. And you feel all of the emotions again. You can remember where you were standing. You can remember what you were wearing, what you were eating when you got the news. You can instantly recall everything that happened because it's easy to remember the hard days, isn't it? There's a lot of good days in between the hard days, but it's really easy to remember the hard days because it's like a scar. Something came into contact with you, it broke through, and it changed you forever. You can look at a scar on your body and remember exactly where it came from. The same thing is true with these events, these tragedies that happen. We can instantly remember what was going on and what happened. I asked you to do that because I also want you to think about how did you respond in that painful season? How do you respond to conflict? When life hits you, how do you react? I think we're all wired a little bit differently to react uniquely when life hits us. I'll give you an example from my life this week. Uh, my wife and I uh, just respond differently to conflict. Okay, So Wednesday morning, um, I had planned kind of like a little staff retreat. A bunch of the staff were going to get in a car, drive up to the cities. And with summer, our schedules are kind of all over the place. We hadn't spent a lot of time together. And I was just like, hey, guys, let's get together. Let's have some fun. Um, you know, let's dream a little bit, vision. What's God want to do in and through us here in this city? And um, it was a great day planned. So Wednesday morning, I'm actually borrowing my wife's car to fit everybody in. And so we're out in the driveway and we're moving things over car seats into my car so that she can have the kids. And, and uh, our son Mason is uh, three and a half and he's really good at like steering the stroller around, like kind of scary good. Um, where like we've had him in Ikea before and the dude like navigates the aisles and like, you know, like he's like not slow. He's moving pretty fast and like coming up on kids and you're kind of like, oh, this could be bad. And he's just like, like around people and like kind of scary. I'm hoping he has a future in NASCAR, but I don't know. I mean, I guess that's just a circle. No offense to NASCAR. But uh, really good driver, right? Really good driver. So he, he's uh, messing around with the stroller. The problem uh, will come into play here in a minute that our 11-month-old Jackson was buckled into that stroller and uh, we kind of see it start to happen out of the corner of our eyes. But uh, when kids are, ha like Jackson's loving every second of it. And they're kind of just going back and forth on the sidewalk. And um, when you have two kids under, you know, the age of four, you kind of just, whenever they're happy, you just roll with it as long as you can. Like, this is fine until it's not fine. And then we'll deal with it. So we were kind of just letting it happen. And as a parent, you kind of have this, like, premonition, like, this could end really poorly. But I'm not going to do anything about it. So just kind of rolled with it. And I remember I'm, I'm in my car and I'm like, you know, knees on the car seat, like strapping it in. And I just hear a kid start crying. And I hear this tone in my wife's voice that makes my stomach drop, you know, and she calls out my name. And so I run over there and she's picking up Jackson off the ground. What had happened is uh, he was buckled in and the, uh, Mason had kind of hit a bump and it tipped. And the stroller came crashing over. Luckily, Jackson stayed in the stroller, but his head just slammed on the sidewalk. And uh, he's crying. He's not like 
unconscious at this point, so that's a good sign, but he's all of a sudden getting really lethargic, and, and Jen's kind of holding him, and it's really hard to keep him awake. Like, he just wants to go to sleep as he's crying. And it's like, it's just a terrifying look for an 11-year-old just to be, like, slumped over, like, kind of like, you know, and you're like, okay, this is not good. So we take him inside, and we're kind of like, you know, hey, Jackson, it's okay, and, like, soothing him and all this stuff, giving him toys, and he's, like, super rowdy kid right now, like, can't keep him still, and he's just sitting there, like, slumped, and we're, like, holding our arms out to him to, like, hold him, and he, like, won't even, like, look at us, and we're, like, putting a toy in front of him, and he's kind of, like, flopping his arm to, like, play with the toy, and you're just like, this is not good. This is a, a big deal. Something bad is happening. And so the conflict hits, and my wife and I both go into two different states. I go into fix-it mode. I'm like, okay, we have three options. One, I call an ambulance right now. Two, we get him in the car and drive him to the doctor. Three, I call somebody I know in the medical field. There's a lot of them, and they're just going to drive to my house as fast as they can and tell me what to do, right? And Jen's just feeling all of the range of emotions of this situation, like guilt as a mom that she let this happen, you know, like trying to deal with Mason who feels super guilty because he knows he did something wrong, upset that her baby's crying, like just like, like emotions, emotions, emotions. I'm like, we need to like deal with this right now. And so we kind of have this like tense moment in our house and end up getting him in the car. We drive him, he falls asleep on the way there. And everything I've ever heard about concussions is like, don't let the person fall asleep, right? So I'm like, Jen, keep him awake. Starts projectile vomiting in the back of my car as we're driving. So I go into full like need for speed mode. I'm like zipping it out, broke a few traffic laws, full disclosure in church. Okay, sue me later, I don't care. All right, and we're like driving. I'm like cutting people off, pulling the emergency room. And I run in there, I run up to the thing, I cut everybody in line. I'm like, my kid hit his head on the concrete, he's throwing up and I'm freaking out. (laughs) Praise the Lord for responsible, professional emergency room people. She's like, sir, I'm looking at him. I can see his eyes. We're going to be okay. Okay, we're going to get you checked in. I'm sorry, sir, that, you know, he ran in front of you. Yeah, yeah, I know there's an ax in your head, but it's okay. You know, like, I'm like, just come people out. I have no idea what their story is. They're not just hanging out at the emergency room, but mine was the most important, obviously. Long story short, Jackson's fine. I uh, had a concussion, but, you know, put him on a six-hour watch for something more serious, and he bounced back pretty fast. The kid's a tank. Grateful for my Thomas jeans that I could give him. Um... But like, just like a random Wednesday morning, like this is happening, right? Like everything's hunky-dory, the sun's shining, birds chirping, and we're, I'm about to have the, a really good day. Like I'm going to work and it's going to be a fun day, and boom, this hits, right? And you respond to conflict. What pours out of me in that moment? So maybe you're sitting there and like, yeah, I can, I can relate to some of that stuff. I haven't had anything like major happen, you know? No tragedies, no major sickness, so I don't really know how I would, how I would respond in that situation. I want to encourage you today to prepare for the worst day of your life. Today is the day to prepare for the worst day of your life. Because if there's one thing we know is that life is hard, and despite the cheesy Christianese phrases, like life with Jesus is not guaranteed rainbows and sunshine. In fact, Jesus promises. He doesn't suggest that it might happen. He promises suffering. For example, Acts 14.22 says, Paul talking to all his churches, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. John 15.20 And Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter 4.12 In other words, it's not strange, it's expected. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
So what is the emergency plan? What will you do in the middle of the worst day of your life? I believe the thing we can do today to prepare for that worst day, the rock we can put in our jar, is the discipline of meditation. I want to introduce you to a man named Asaph. He's a major contributor to the book of Psalms, and specifically today I want us to look at Psalm 77 together. So open your Bibles to Psalm 77. And I want us to get a bigger, a better grip on the big rock of meditation. And as you open your Bibles to Psalm 77, I want you to think about this question. When I say the word meditation, what comes to your mind? I asked a few people that this week. I even threw it out on Facebook just to see what kind of responses I could get. These were the best ones I got. Answers were chanting, home, right? Yoga, a higher level of thinking, being undistracted, and my personal favorite, monks. So a lot of different thoughts pop into our head when we hear this word meditation, but let's uh, clear away all the cultural stereotypes around it. Here's a simple definition, like straight, of the word meditation. To actively engage in contemplation, pondering, focused thinking upon a specific thing. The reality is, is that we all meditate on a daily basis. I meditated on this message all week. I meditated on a project at work. You meditated on that vacation you're planning this summer, the problem you're having in this situation, the relationship that you're pursuing with this person. We're all meditating at some point during the day when we focus all of our attention and thoughts towards a specific thing. Now, the duration of that meditation is a different story. The ability to stay focused and zoned in on one thing is almost impossible in this day and age. I was sitting downtown at a coffee shop this week, and I was meditating on all the things I was meditating about as I meditated on meditation. And um, I had earbuds in, right, playing music, and I was thinking about, man, I should probably get a refill on my coffee. It's getting a little cold, and I was thinking about this message, and then I was getting a text from my wife about something we're planning for in August, and then I looked out the window, and there were cars driving down Broadway, and I was thinking about, man, there's a lot of people just living their life, and with the stories that are in those cars, and then I started to, like, watch people in the coffee shop, and, you know, I'm listening to music, and I could see their lips move, so I started to overdub, like, funny conversations in my head that they were having between each other, and I was thinking about the email that I was supposed to be answering, and then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm writing a message. All of that going through my head in, like, a 30-second span. It's so easy to be distracted today. It's really hard to be focused. So it's no wonder we've popularized the idea of meditation of, hey, wouldn't it be awesome if you just sat and thought about one thing for an hour? I want you to think about your breath. Let everything else fade away. That sounds amazing right? Because nobody's doing that. It's the complete opposite of that. It's like, how many messages can you cram inside your brain in one day? How many messages can I give to you in one day? And instead, meditation is this like calming, like feeling, and we all feel like we're Zen Jedi masters when we do it. Like, man, I'm going to tap into my force powers right now. But what we're talking about here is actively engaging in contemplation. Let's look at this example from Psalm 77, verses 1 and 2. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. 
In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. It's pretty clear uh, that Asaph is having a bad day. Possibly the worst day of his life. He's not in a great spot. He's not sleeping. He's tried a few things to cheer himself up and nothing is working. Look at verse 3. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Literally, he's saying everything is so bad right now that I don't even want to think about God and his promises because it hurts too much. Have you ever been in that spot? Come on, don't leave me up here. Have you ever been in a spot where you're like, man, I, I, like, I don't want to hear that God is good right now. I just want to be mad. I want to be upset. I love being married because it just roots out some like really deep, dark, ugly in you, and then you get to share that disgustingness with another human being. It's amazing. No, really it is, because I need it, right? Because I get in these spots. We all do. My wife and I just, uh, we celebrated five years of marriage yesterday, and uh, yeah, come on, let's go. Shooting for 70 more. I can remember numerous times uh, over these past five years where I was sideways in a situation. And my wife, being who she is, uh, would try to help. And she'd be like, hey, may, like even something as simple as, hey, maybe we should just pray about this. And I'm like, oh, sure. Play the God card. Because what am I supposed to say that? No. <laughs> like, right? So then I just get super sassy and I'm like, fine. Dear God, <laughs> thanks for this stupid situation right now. You're great. Love it. Amen. Right? Full disclosure. But this happens to us, even to ASAP, verse 4 and 5, look at him. He's going to use some kind of poetical language right here, so I'm going to add in some paraphrases from the BLT. That's the Brent Lingo translation. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. God, you won't even let me sleep. I'm so distraught that I don't even want to pray right now. I consider the days of old, the years long ago, the good old days when things were awesome. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Remember when things were great and I was like singing that worship song all the time? You make the darkness tremble. Yeah, I believe that. Thinking about your promises. Then my spirit made a diligent search. I love this because this is so me, right? This is the like, my spirit made a diligent search. He's saying, it's like he's, he's kind of arguing with himself. He's like, everything's awful. But man, I want to think about your good. Remember when things were awesome and I'm thinking about your goodness and he starts to kind of think about that and he's like, no, like, yes, that was true. But let me get back to this because things are different now. Things aren't great. Before I start to go too down the road of like healing, let's talk about how everything's awful again. I'm not ready to get there. I'm comparing how things are now and I have some questions. Verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? 
If you were sitting with Asaph for coffee this week and you asked him, hey man, how's it going? I know you're kind of in a rough season right now. Why don't you, you know, just give me an update. And he just word vomited all this all over you. You'd probably be like, dude, are you okay? Like, that was pretty rough. And he'd probably be like, no, I'm not okay. Here's the first key to practicing biblical meditation. Speak to God honestly. Speak to God honestly. Listen, church, it's okay to not be okay. This is something we get wrong in church a lot. We think we have to get our lives together. We have to figure this thing out. We have to clean up this mess in our lives before we can come to the Lord. But Asaph is giving us a great example that a part of this big rock is being honest with ourselves and with God that things aren't great and saying it out loud. God, I want to think about your goodness and your mercy and everything awesome. And I know that there's times in my life where that was true. But if I'm being completely honest, everything is awful right now and I hate it. And I'm mad at you for allowing this in my life. And I'm questioning what changed. This is key because if we believe that we can somehow trick our minds into thinking how we really feel about a situation isn't really true. Like, oh, I don't really, this isn't true. Like, I need to get to a different reality. If we think we can trick God on how we actually feel about a subject, Scripture says that God knows our thoughts before we do. So if we're really going to meditate on the things of the Lord and believe what we're meditating on, we have to be honest with God and ourselves of where we are really at. 40% of the Psalms are laments. 40% of the songs from the songbook of the church are written in a minor key and would be on a dark and moody playlist on Spotify. But here we come all the time in church singing, everything is awesome. Thinking that we can like will ourselves into like, oh, if I just like stop thinking about it. That's where biblical meditation is really different than worldly meditation. There's only one way you're going to get out of the hole that you're in and the power is not locked away inside your mind somewhere and you have to like tap into it and chant enough to tap into it. The power is in the work of God that has already happened. Watch here as Asaph works through this process for himself. Verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this. I'm going to think about this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. Literally, I have a footnote in my Bible that he's like, this, this is my problem, Lord. You have changed. But, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember what you've already done. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. What's he doing? He's remembering. He's voiced his frustration. He's asked the hard questions. Now he's allowing the truth to wash over him as who he calls the works of God that he knows to be true. That's the second key. Recall the truth constantly. 
Recall the truth constantly. A huge facet of biblical meditation is remembering. To look back and see what has already happened and find the anchor in all of it that grounds you from slipping into another dimension of worry and anxiety. We have to remember the truth. But where do we find this truth? What is the foundation I can go back to again and again that will never change? When the world is spinning and I'm getting tossed all around, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging, his grace, his word, his truth. I love this because Asaph is referencing a specific arc of the story of God's truth. He's saying, God, I know who you are. I'm remembering all that you've done. And God, I can't ignore the history of my people, the people that you came and you rescued out of Egypt. By your hand, you redeemed your people, the people of Jacob and Joseph. Now, how would he know this? I mean, he wasn't there. Because somebody wrote it down. You want to know how you can be effective in having meditation as a big rock in your life and call, recall the truth constantly? Write it down. Keep a journal. Whether it's a hard copy or it's digital, there are so many tools available to capture and digest the work of God in your life. This is a discipline that every follower of God should be developing in their life. And listen, I am a self-diagnosed chronic journal starter. I have like 50 journals, right? A couple weeks ago, Pastor Steve came and he, um, this was a few months ago, and he, he set like a stack of journals on, on his table and he was like, these are all the you know, journals I've been keeping, right? You know, everybody's like, oh man. And I'm sitting there going, I have that many journals. If I combined all the entries, I'd have two, you know? But wherever I'm at in that discipline, it doesn't matter. You know how many times I've gone back to read those? I have one that's the most completed out of the 50 that I own. And uh, the first entry is actually, it's a, I was laying on uh, the floor of Steve, De- Steve Diedrich's two or three bedroom apartment in Chicago, sleeping there that night because I had come to visit him as he was at the training center in Chicago preparing to come and plant this church. And I'm writing this journal entry. I just spent the day with him and, you know, his crazy kids and, um, you know, heard all about this vision of what God wanted to do in Rochester. And You know, how many times that has come in handy on the days where I sit and question, God, did you really bring me here? Do you really want me to do this? Like, are you really using me? Because I feel like a complete failure. I can go back and I can read and see how God was showing me in His Word, and where the Holy Spirit was driving into me a resolve and a passion and a vision of what the Lord could do through me here in this city. I need that. You need that. Keep a journal. Keep a journal and watch the way you meditate on God and His truth increase exponentially. But the reality is you won't always have your journal on you. And there'll be times where you need to recall the truth. Whether it's in the middle of a tragedy or just on a hard day. 
So another discipline that I think, you know, is definitely lacking in my own life and is maybe lacking in the church as a whole is memorization of Scripture. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but hiding the Word of God in your heart will allow you to meditate it on ways that reading alone could never do. Believers, when we get cut, we should bleed the Word of God. When the cancer diagnosis comes, when you're handed the pink slip, when the school shooting happens, when the loved one dies tragically through the sobs should come, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hide the word in your heart. Meditate on it. Meditating on the truth of God allows us to navigate the deepest waters in the highest mountaintop, staying rooted in our faith that God is faithful and true. And meditation always, always, always results in worship. Because when we come to God honestly and allow ourselves to recall His truth constantly, we cannot help but worship His majesty. It's our third key this morning. Worship the Lord's majesty. Psalm 77, verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. See, Asaph is remembering one of the greatest miracles the Israelites ever witnessed. I want you to turn over to Exodus chapter 14. Here's the context. Israelites had just seen the plagues on the Egyptians ending in the death of every firstborn in Egypt in the houses that didn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And so Pharaoh's hand finally releases them. And they're leaving Egypt and they come to the Red Sea and they kind of realize that they're hemmed in on all sides by this sea. They can only backtrack at this point. And then they find out that Pharaoh has changed his mind yet again. And the Egyptians are coming, and probably the majority of these warriors who are coming out to meet them had just had their firstborn killed. So they're not coming to inform the Israelites that they have a breach of contract and they need to return to Egypt or suffer legal ramifications. The plan is probably to slaughter a huge percentage of them, especially Moses and Aaron, and then take the rest back into captivity and make them forever remember never to go against Pharaoh. 
They're blood-hungry warriors coming out to meet these women, children, flocks, unarmed. And the people are figuring this out. So let's pick it up in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Kind of reminds me of Asaph questioning. What is, what's the plan here, Moses? What's the plan here, God? This looks awful. And Moses said to the people, here's a man who has the discipline of meditation. In the face of tragedy, in the face of peril, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Down to verse 21. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So this is a crazy story, right? And all this happens. And then the next chapter in Exodus 15, what's the heading? What's it say in your Bible? The Song of Moses. Moses straight up gets to the other side of the sea. Water comes crashing down, wipes out all of the enemies that were bearing down on them. And he turns to his people and he says, Yup, now let's sing. When we see God's power, we worship. For Asaph, when he remembered God's power, he worshiped. Meditation always results in worship. Because it really doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what it is you're facing. When you meditate on God's power, when you cry out to the God who split the sea, 
to the God who numbers the stars in the sky, to the God who knows the number of hairs on your head, to God who made the smallest, tiniest creature to the biggest, brightest star. When you cry out to that God, everything else kind of pales in comparison. When you remember who is fighting for you, Can't you just see it? I love, I love how abruptly Psalm 77 ends. Like, there's no resolution. There's nothing telling us that Asaph kind of like figured out that things kind of got better. He's just in this amazing spot of worship. Saying, God, you are holy, you are mighty. The deep trembles before you. Darkness trembles before it. You did it. You made a way. And then he sets the pen down and he walks forward, believing every word that he just wrote down over whatever situation he was going to find himself in. Could you do that today? It's early this morning still, but what if today was going to be the worst day of your life? Are you in a place where you would be able to meditate and believe that the name of Jesus Christ cannot be overcome? That there is no darkness, there is no sin, there is no pain, there is no situation that Jesus does not have power over. And we recall the truth of 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. God, your way was through the water. Your way was through the sea, yet your footprints were unseen. God, your way was through the trial. Your way was through the hardest thing that I could have come across, but the whole time you were doing something that I couldn't see. And I will meditate on that and I will believe it. So as we close our service, I want to end our time together this way. I'm aware that there are people listening today who can closely relate to the first half of this Psalm 77. You find yourself right in the middle of sleepless nights, tearful prayers, and questioning whether or not God is still good but you're here today. And honestly, um, the church isn't a hospital. I'm not here to like fix you up and and send you out so that you don't need the Lord and, and the church after this moment. You're not here to get some type of magical healing and then step out and not need God or his people anymore. The best illustration I have for the church is a mystery. 
It's the only one I can find in Scripture. And we don't always have the right answers. We don't always know what to say. But we, what we can do is walk with you through the hardest part of your life, through the lowest valleys that you are in. That is what the church can be. So if you find yourself here today and you're in that spot, I want to I just invite you to be brave enough to stand up this morning. If you're here and right now, these days are, are some of the hardest parts of your life or you're going through something or you just even don't know how to walk through it by yourself, would you be brave enough to just stand? And, and the truth is, is that there's a di- dichotomy in the room of people who, who are standing, of people who need to stand, and those who are, man, Lord, you've been gracious enough to put me in a season right now where I don't feel that way. And your responsibility this morning is to speak the truth, to lead others into worship of the Lord's majesty. And so if you, if you are going through that hard season, I want to invite you to continue to stand, and you can stand at any point. But uh, if you're sitting, I want to invite you to, if you're close to those standing, to get around them, to step out and to uh, say, hey, this is, this is an opportunity for me to, to step in front of you and say, hey, God is good, and he's working. I don't have all the right answers. I don't know or even know what to say right now, but I know that I can walk with you through this because we're family, we're a church. So right now, I want you to, if, you're, if you see people standing, I want you to get around them. If you're kind of far away, just to reach a hand out. We're all going to pray together here in a minute. You can put a hand on their shoulder if they're cool with that. And in just a second, I'm going to ask us all this to pray over them. Now listen, don't just, don't just pray some words that come to mind. Pray truth over them. Pray God's word over them. The thing they need right now is to meditate on the truth of who God really is and to worship the truth of his majesty. So open up your Bible if you need to, but we're just going to, all together, we're just going to pray out. A few people lead out and pray. And let's agree with them in prayer. Let's pray God's truth over them. Let's do it right now. Come on, church, pray. And God, it's your deeds that we remember. God, it's your hand that we've seen move. We come as dependent people. Lord, forgive us for the times that we come thinking that we have this all figured out. Forgive us for the times that we neglect the seasons of your grace and your blessing. And God, help us in the season of pain and trial to understand that this is not the end. That there is truth to believe. There is truth to have faith We understand that the God of the universe is fighting for us. What can come against? God, when it seems like we are at the end and you have brought us down to the lowest point, we know, God, that you are holding us 
shaping us into the saints that you have called us to be, to live in a world, God, that is full of sin and evil. God, it's not easy. But we serve the God who makes the darkness tremble. We serve the God who overcame sin and death. So God, our lives can be taken from us. You can take everything from us in this world. And if we still have you, it is enough. God, help meditation be not some other realm, otherworldly thing that we can try and conjure up or manufacture, but let it just be a state of living in your truth. In the best and in the worst times in our life to speak your truth over ourselves that you are worth it all. God, we love you. We need more of you. So God, give us the strength to stand, the strength to believe. In your name we pray. Amen.